the pandemic happened. And prior to that, I was designing clothes for events, for weddings, vacations, anniversaries, all the events that kind of stopped. And so to me, it was a very critical point in my business where it was you either sink or sail at this point and figure out what it is that you're going to do. Welcome to the Brown Girl Podcast. This show was created to elevate the voices and perspectives of dual identity South Asians around the world. Here we have conversations on topics and issues that impact our community, as well as share the stories of personal successes and the struggles that often go unsaid. My name is Julie George, and I'm your host. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today to episode 49. Today, we are speaking with Mega Rao. Mega is the founder of Holy Chic by Mega, a fashion brand that was one of the first Indo-Western clothing brands we saw that really took off. They were founded in 2015, debuted in New York Fashion Week in 2021. We've seen incredible partnerships, collaborations, notable features, and they're just a really cool company at the forefront of reinvention and creating something that is really unique that will leave a mark. And so I really enjoy this conversation with Mega. We learn about her background, how she worked a corporate job at Citibank in New York City for almost 15 years while building Holy Chic on the side. We talked about how she met her co-founder and just various elements of building up the business and the brand. We also talked about constructs in the fashion world, such as fast fashion and sustainability. I was also able to ask her about the South Asian community support. So this episode was actually recorded back in May. And at the time, there were a few other South Asian female founders and entrepreneurs sharing videos that were getting a lot of attention talking about this construct of gatekeeping within our brown community and the lack of support within our brown community. So I was able to ask Mega her perspectives and experiences on that front. So I really enjoyed our conversation. You can tell when you hear her talk, there's a lot of strength in her words. And it was just really empowering, I think, to hear about her experiences and mindset and outlook. So I hope you enjoy. Here's Mega. Also, guys, just a heads up, there are some weird background noises that occasionally pop up throughout this recording. I hope you can bear with it. I care a lot about audio quality and I was not able to fix it. Hi, Mega. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you, Julie. I'm excited to be here. So you have created an amazing brand, Holy Chic. I feel like you are one of the pioneers in terms of creating a fashion brand that is very much a fusion of East meets West. You know, like now there's a lot more options, a lot more designers who are putting out designs with similar inspirations. Yes. But you've been doing this since 2014, and it was something that you were doing on the side for a while, like while you were working full time at Citibank. And so I'm sure there's a lot of stories and build it behind it. But, you know, take us back to your childhood. Like, tell us a little bit about your childhood and what did you envision for your life growing up? And how did the fashion influence and interest start? So great question, Julie. I mean, yes, I am. Um, I've been doing I, I call Holy Chic my third baby since 2014. And, you know, I feel like many other women and men in, in our diaspora, we grew up in a very unique time, right? We were, some of us are children of immigrants. We were exposed to two very contrasting cultures from a very young age. Something that was interesting in my childhood was that my mom actually, instead of sending me to summer camp every summer, she would send me to India. 
So she'd put me on a flight. I would go in with the air hostess on the plane. And all my summer vacations I spent in India with my grandmother. And when I first started doing it, I didn't like it. I was like, where am I going? Like, what is this place? I don't want to go. But then year after year, I started loving it. And I started appreciating that I had the opportunity to be exposed to two very different worlds. So that's where I would say the love of fashion and culture was was originated. At that point, obviously, I didn't know Holy Chic would exist. But I think the very foundation of cultural appreciation came from that experience. Yeah, such a cool story. So I know you did some modeling, too, for a while. So how did the opportunities for modeling come about? Okay, so I, we used to have, so back in the day, we used to have set like local pageants, like Miss India New York, Miss India USA. And I did it for the opportunity to build my confidence. So I, you know, like I said to you, I was a young girl. I lived in Queens, New York. I would go to India. And sometimes I was just a little bit lost. I was like, who, what, who am I? Like, what, what world do I belong to? And I had a bit of, I would say, insecurities growing up as a young girl, just trying to identify like who I was and what I represented. And so I decided to do this beauty pageant. I can't remember what year. Must have been like 2016, 2015. I, I don't even remember the year. But that opportunity led me to meet people in the industry, which was probably one of the highlights of this entire experience for me, because obviously today those relationships are still very, very valuable in my life. And modeling came as a direct result of these pageants. And I had the opportunity to work with South Asian designers from Pakistan, from India, and get like an up close view into their world, get an early on understanding of embroidery, textiles, fashion, but from a different lens, right? When you're wearing the clothes and you're walking in them, it's very different than making them. So I um I just think that that opportunity really helped me in in what I'm doing today. Um yeah, that's that's amazing. I think everything you said just perfectly echoes a blog post I recently wrote about thinking about everything you're doing as kind of like a building block because it's like you you tackle one thing and even if that one thing is not the end game for you, the skills you learn, the knowledge you pick up, the relationships you build often play a part in that big, bigger picture and, you know, help you in whatever the next thing is that you're going to do. Exactly. So I love that you shared that tidbit. And then when you say pageants, was this in your teenage years or 20s? Yeah, I would say okay. it was in my, yeah, in my 20s. Hey, y'all, quick break here to tell you about one of our episode sponsors, Lingo Dodo. If you come from a South Asian cultural background and you have young children or nieces or nephews and you want to help them preserve their native language, allow me to share Lingo Dodo with you. Their signature product is the Lingo Pad, which is designed to teach kids the basics of their native language and is currently offered in Gujarati, Hindi, Punjabi, Tamil, Telugu, and my mother tongue, Malayalam. I love the mission of this company. All of their products are safe, screen-free, and educational alternatives to the internet, ensuring that children are using technology for good. With the holiday season around the corner, check out their suite of products at www.lingododo.com. That's L-I-N-G-O-D-O-D-O.com. And give the gift of culture and language to the children in your life. And now back to our episode. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you grew up going to India every summer. You started becoming more intrigued by, you know, the styling and the fusing of like the Indian clothes with the American clothes. So then when you went to college, what did you major in? And tell us a little bit about how you started your corporate career after. 
Yeah. So ironically, my career was I was actually studying journalism and business. So completely different than anything to do with fashion. But it was almost I really honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something in the entertainment field. I I was toying with the idea of becoming a news reporter at some point. Um, but I was always a very I was always somebody who was very outgoing, somebody who enjoyed sharing, communicating, talking. And at the same time, I loved being Indian and being South Asian. And so I remember in college, within my freshman or my sophomore year, I started my own dance group because I wanted something where I still felt like I was able to celebrate and have this cultural element to my college life. And so I started this dance group. It was a group of about 10 of us. And that was like my family back in college. And we, and it was everything we used to share about fashion, culture. We used to do competitions together. Um, so I had a really great balance throughout my college time. And, um, you know, again, that also influenced what I'm doing today. That's awesome. And then you started your career at Citibank. So you were doing the corporate life for, you know, 14 or 15 years. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was your journey in corporate America? And at what point did you realize you wanted to go full time into continuing to build out Holy Chic? Yeah. So I am um, actually right out of college, joined City. And again, for me, it wasn't about finance. It wasn't about, at the end of the day, like the particular role that I was hired for was about communication, about speaking with people, about business. And that was just something that I, it was natural to me. Like I just personally enjoy doing that kind of work. So I, I was at the company for 15 years. I did all different types of roles within there, stemming from management to marketing. Like I, I was just going all, all around the company and learning so many different, amazing, amazing things. But at some point I began feeling like I was missing out on my passion, which was tied back to being South Asian, being creative, having an outlet. And so I, I started just putting looks together on my free time on weekends when I had events, mixing and matching from my mom's wardrobe and mine. And it became like my outlet. It was my, it was my creative outlet. And I did it when I, when I had time on the weekends and that eventually became what is Holy Chic today. Yeah, that's that's really cool because I, I think I know there's a lot of people listening who may be in the boat of having different interests and passions and side hustles, but they're still working their traditional job and they're not quite ready to let go of that traditional job. And, you know, we hear of so many stories of people who took the plunge very early on and quit their day jobs and like 100 percent into their business. And I I, def I think there's definitely something inspiring and amazing and beautiful about that in its own way. But I think like the Internet, especially with social media, really idolizes a lot, idolizes that a lot. Yes. And I think what's cool about your story is you spent years and years and years doing the corporate grind and using that as a means to like fuel your passion and fund your passion. Yes. And I think. I think like more people need to hear that, that it's OK to do a regular job while still having a while still having side hustles and passions and, and things like that. Like, don't, you know, discount your day job, because like you mentioned, there were all of those soft skills that you learned that will be critical to carrying out all the other things that you want to in the next chapter of your life. Too. Yeah. And it's really like, honestly, it's not a race. And I think everyone's just like 
Now it's like the cool thing to do. It's like, yeah. I, I got to be my own boss. But it's, you, you need skills to do that. You need a foundation. You need basic business skills. And yes, you can take the leap and, you know, take that leap early on and figure it out later. Or you can learn it, right? While you're in your corporate job, learn all these foundational skills that you're going to need. Self-fund your business versus going out there and looking for outside investments and capital if you don't need it. Um, and, and you can really self-fund that dream. And, and it's not a race. I think that's something that people, you know, it's you, you, everyone's like trying to just like hit the trigger and hit the pedal and you want to just do it so quickly, but it's not necessary to do it that way. Yeah. And what year did you, what year did you quit your corporate job to do Holy Chic full time? I would say right in between the pandemic. So early 2021 is when I actually went full time with Holy Chic. Yeah. Okay. So that's like a good, what, six or seven years after you originally started Holy Chic? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So while you were working full time, you're building out Holy Chic. I'm sure you had other things on your plate, you know, family, being a new mom. What were some of the strategies that you that you used to balance everything like between managing your time, managing your brain space and just maximizing how you can be as productive as possible? So I asked for a lot of help. I wasn't shy in asking for help. And I think that was, you know, the real, the real first step. And ironically, like you said, you know how you mentioned, you know, the journey is unique. I had a corporate job. It took me, you know, X amount of years to get to the point where I could go full time. I also decided to start my business after becoming a mother, right? I could have done it before, but in a very beautiful way, becoming a mom actually influenced me to take that leap of faith. And I say that because it's a whole new world, right? When you have your own child and you're thinking about how do I want to raise my son? What do I want him to see? What do I want him to learn and know? And I, and I kept telling myself, Meg, these are the things that you want. You want to have your own business. You have a passion for fashion, for culture. What a great way to be a role model for your own children and taking that leap of faith in a time where other people will be like, you're crazy. Like you're absolutely yeah. nuts to be doing this now. You have so many new responsibilities, but it actually motivated me and inspired me to do it because I became a mother. So that that's like one very you know unique element to the story, which I also try to tell young girls and, and young boys that are trying to start something like, you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. You can have the family, you can have the corporate job, you can be a parent, and you can pursue your dreams. It all comes down to balance and how bad you want it. So that brings me to strategy. Like I said, I wasn't afraid to ask for help. I outsourced the things that I could, right? Like laundry or just silly things that would take up a lot of the time in a day. I outsourced whatever I possibly could. I have a great support system. My husband, he's been aware of my long-term goals. I've been very open with communication with him. Um, and so he, he was aware, you know, this is what her future looks like. This is what she wants to do. And not being afraid to tell people what it is so that they know what to expect and they know how to support you. So I would say that's one strategy. And the other thing is you got to be prepared to hustle. Like I gave up weekends. I gave up going out. I gave up partying and I would use my weekends and my nights to build my business. And sometimes you have to do that, right? Sometimes it's about sacrifice. And if I think back, I, I honestly wouldn't change a thing. I don't regret missing out on anything. Yeah, I love especially what you shared about asking for help because our brain space is really valuable currency. Yep. Decision fatigue is very much a real thing. I've heard this being echoed by successful entrepreneurs is that is 
like figuring out how to minimize decision fatigue so that you're only making decisions on the things that are really going to move the needle for you is really important. Like all of those things that you just mentioned, dinner, laundry, those often are decisions that can be easily offloaded to someone else and still have the same outcome. Exactly. Yep. So you said you went full time into Holy Chic during the pandemic. Was there a pivotal time when you realized, okay, it's time to transition? Or was it like the culmination of a lot of things? You know, can you kind of speak to your decision on when you decided to go full time and leave the corporate world? So very interesting, right? The pandemic happened. And prior to that, I was designing clothes for events, for weddings, for vacations, for anniversaries, things that stopped all the events that kind of stopped. And so to me, um, it was a very critical point in my business where it was you either sink or sail at this point and figure out what it is that you're going to do. So I spoke with my, I remember having a call with my co-founder, Pooja, and I said, what are we going to do? Like we, there's no more events happening. We have all these clothes that are basically for events that are just non-existent for God knows how long at this point. Um, what are we going to do? And so we brainstormed a few ideas and we both decided that we were going to give everything that we possibly could to, to keep this business afloat at that time. And so what we did was um, we started thinking about what people wanted at that time. What they wanted was face masks. What they wanted was cute loungewear so they can wear cute things at home because like, where were we going at that point? And I started thinking of ways that we could infuse culture into that because obviously I always want to stay true to the brand and not completely pivot to something that makes no relevant sense with the brand. So we started creating masks with fabrics that were left in our factory because we couldn't use those fabrics. So we upcycled them, made masks, and it literally transformed my entire business because people were, people were buying these masks for their friends, their family, and it ended up giving us an entire new audience that we never had before, right? And then we pivoted into hoodies and t-shirts where, where we had these really cool graphics um, where we collaborated with South Asian artists who were also at that point struggling, right? To have income and sustain their art and their craft. And so we onboarded them, we collaborated with these different artists and created an entire loungewear line, again, which brought in a whole new audience. And so at that point, it just became very, very big. I would say between 2021 and 2022, that one year um, in terms of growth for us was the most we ever saw in our six years of business because wow. we introduced this new product um, line that we never had before. So in some ways, the pandemic, you know, forced me to think differently yeah. and to think yeah. outside the box. And I, and I think if it wasn't for that, I probably would be doing the same thing right now. Like I, I may have still been at City. I may have still been doing, you know, formal wear and it just... It made me think differently and it just pushed me. If you have a craving for Indian food but don't always have the time to make Indian food and you want healthy options, I want to tell you about the Cumin Club. The Cumin Club is a meal kit service offering authentic Indian meals made in five minutes or less. The first time I tried the Cumin Club, I was blown away at the authentic flavors and I couldn't believe that all I had to do was add hot water and wait a few minutes. All of their meals use high quality ingredients and spices specific to each region of India. 
Their innovative freeze-drying technology ensures a long shelf life for all of their products, which means I can keep their meal kits on hand without worrying if they'll go bad soon. Some of my personal favorites are sambar idli, masala bindi, and rice upma. Head over to their website and discover over 30 different types of Indian dishes to choose from. Simply pick your meals and get them delivered right to your door with free shipping. Check out www.thecumanclub.com or view the show notes for more details. And now, back to our episode. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to observe how, like, oftentimes when we're forced into these high-pressure moments where our backs are against the wall, your creativity and problem-solving start to emerge in ways that you would have never imagined. So it's really cool to hear how that manifested for you. Um, So you mentioned you have a co-founder. So how did you meet your co-founder and how did you guys decide that you would be good business partners? Good question. So let me start by saying it's hard, right? It's especially hard when you are co-founders with a friend. So Booja and I are actually childhood friends. Um, Believe it or not, growing up, her and I used to actually be in the same dance team. I was probably, I don't know, six or seven years old. And we used to do Gujarati folk dance. We used to do competitions on the weekends. And we were in the same in the same dance group. And at that point, we weren't very close, but we were just, you know, acquaintances, friends, and we were all in the same team. And I would say it was after we graduated and then we ended up both moving back to the city. We started doing those shows together, our fashion shows. And so, I would, you know, that, that friendship kind of um, at that point rekindled and we both were just very passionate about the same things, about fashion and culture and um, celebrating being South Asian. And so I remember coming to her when I was thinking of this idea of starting my own brand. And she at that time worked at Google. And I, I used to pick her brain. I was like, well, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of this from a marketing standpoint? And one thing led to the next. And she she thought that, you know, it would be for her, she actually was very interested in the company as well. She thought it was a a really cool, fresh idea. And so we just started, she literally became a co-founder just off of that one conversation, you know, so that's sometimes all it takes. I will say this though, it is hard. It's super, super hard to sustain a friendship while also running a business. But I think the beauty in our relationship is that we both have very different strengths. She's the analytics, she's operations, she's marketing. And I'm creative, like I'm the messy, creative person that can't stay organized. And she's the one that really keeps us um, holding. I also have a third business partner um, that we brought on right after the pandemic. His name is Sachin. And he does a lot of our business strategy now for us. Um, Just thinking about like the long-term vision of the brand and also helps us with our finances, which obviously is a big part of running a business. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit more on behind the scenes of Holy Chic? Like, How often are you guys releasing new designs or new collections? How does that all form to be? What is that general workflow like and who's all involved? Yeah, so the majority majority of the design work is me. And for me, it's it's an every single day job. There's no cut on or cut off or like these are the months you're working on design. It's when I'm inspired and when I'm thinking of new things, I put pieces into production right away. So it's an everyday thing. We generally have two drops a year, which is around the springtime and around fall. And my motto has always been less is more. I'm not somebody that likes to give way too many options for a line. I like to talk about the pieces. I like to talk about the inspiration. I want people to connect with the garments versus being like, here's 50 dresses you can pick. And for me to do that, I need to, I need to have small batches that are dropped throughout the year. And so 
what you'll see with Holy Chic is yes, we'll have a spring collection, but within that there'll be several drops that happen split up from, you know, April, May, and June so that people have time to understand the designs and, and what they represent. Um, so that's something that's very important to me as a designer. And so typically I would say we do about 40 to 50 designs per year. And again, like I mentioned, Pooja does a lot of the strategy work. She helps when it comes to our photo shoots. There's a lot of logistics involved in getting the pieces made on time, especially when you work with India um, and getting them to our warehouse so that they can ship to our clients. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you make things in batches. So if someone sees a piece that they like, I would imagine there's only so many of them, right? That's right. Okay. So, so they're pretty unique. They are unique. And also we we steered away from custom designs also. I think when it comes to South Asian fashion, people are very used to this concept of customization, which is a great thing. But on the flip side, you have to wait, right? You have to wait sometimes four or five, six weeks in order to get something custom created. And so we completely shifted our business model to be ready to wear because what we realized is in this day and age, especially post-pandemic, a lot of the things that are happening are last minute and people need things in a week. People need the Amazon, like two-day prime delivery. And that doesn't that that pertains to clothing as well. And so we are, you know, now in a completely different model where everything is ready to wear, ready to ship, and people get it within less than a week within the US. Yeah, amazing. Um, are there any mistakes or not really mistakes, but like lessons learned or there's things that you wish you would have known at the beginning of like starting this company? Yeah, you know what I would say? The shift from a passion project to running a business is a very, very big, big challenge. Mm -hmm. So I would say that I would have thought that through a little bit more. I think because it was such a sudden change for me where it was like, okay, 2021, you're quitting your job and now your entire income and everything that you're doing is going to rely on this business. Shifting your mindset from... I'm just doing this to have fun. Whatever happens, happens. I have something to fall back on versus this is it now. Like this is your business. You have to think strategically. You have to make sure operations that everything's in place. I just wish that I thought that through um, earlier than later. Um, I think that could have kind of just set things up for me a little bit more, even post um, going full time. So that's that's the one thing that I would say is um, just really understanding what it takes to form to have a business and getting the right people on board early on is also something. Mm-hmm. When you think about the early days of Holy Chic or, you know, maybe even more recent times, was there a time that you thought the business isn't going to survive or have those moments of self-doubt? Maybe I should quit. You know, is this really going to go anywhere? Like, did you experience any of that? And if so, how did you push through those moments? Um. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, there's definitely a lot of new brands that are here now. And I think, you know, does that sometimes does that sometimes concern me? Of course, I think it would concern any designer, right? That's in a space that's been doing something for a long time. But I feel like at the end of the day, your story is your story, right? Like you're, yes, everybody can make the same Langa or the same blazer or the same, you know, whatever product it is that you're making, it's going to happen. It's bound to happen at some point, right? For every Uber, there's a lift. It's just meant, it's just going to be that way. But at the end of the day, what motivates me and keeps me going is the fact that no one can, no one can take your experience, your story, your journey and replicate that no matter how hard they try. Right. So I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, Every single piece that I put out there is coming from 
something from within me, right? I grew up in New York. I've got this, you know, exposure to New York street style. I have, you know, the childhood of going to India with my grandmother every summer. I mean, nobody can be that person for me. And so that keeps me going. And, and that's what keeps me reinventing and continuing to come out with, with styles and designs that are fresh and unique because it's coming from, from a journey that's very real. Yeah, I love that. There's so much passion and inspiration that goes behind every piece that you put out. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So pivoting gears a little, uh, there's a few specific topics that I'd love to just hear your perspective on. The first one being around fast fashion. So how do you as a brand and as an independent designer think through the practices and some of the criticism that the fast fashion industry gets? And how does that influence or impact the way that you run your fashion brand? Yeah, so for me, being that I work with artisans in India, for me, it's super important that craftsmanship, sustainability, having fair work practices, all these things are super, super important to me as a designer. And so a lot of the work that you'll see Holy Sheik put out is handmade. We always make sure that we let people know, like these are pieces that are made by craftsmen that have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years, techniques that have been passed down generation after generation, because that's what makes Indian and South Asian fashion so unique to begin with. So that's something that has always been something that's important to, to us here at Holy Sheep. Also, you'll notice a lot of our designs are upcycled. The reason that we do that is because we don't want to waste fabrics, right? We have, obviously we plan for seasons in advance. We're going to make X amount of garments, but sometimes we don't end up using everything. And so I always am trying to think of ways to reuse those fabrics, whether it's making blazers, making scrunchies, making face masks, and giving, giving these fabrics a new life. Um, on the topic of fast fashion, I think there's just a lot of work to be done generally. I don't think that it comes down to one particular brand or pointing fingers, because that's what you see happening a lot. You'll see brands that are targeted right? Because they're the biggest or they're the ones that are causing X amount of damage. It's a bigger issue. It's a much bigger issue that, you know, if you're shopping on Amazon or you're shopping at Zara or you're shopping at from any of these stores, the, the problem lies everywhere, right? And in order for us to, to really fix this problem, it's going to take an army of people that are very passionate about sustainability, about ending this fast fashion, you know, entire, all of it, all, all the stuff that comes with that. So I think when it comes to this concept, it's just something that we have to think of from a much bigger lens instead of pinpointing a specific brand. Yeah. Because it's really part, it's part of everybody's life. There's no way that one single person can say that they're 100% sustainable. It's just not possible in today's environment at all. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think sometimes we put an unfair amount of responsibility on a single brand or a single person. Like we put people or brands up on a pedestal and expect them to be the face of everything, like solving every XYZ issue. And, you know, that's not meant to like discredit those issues. But at the end of the day, it can't fall all on a single person. And I think we even see that manifest in a lot of other ways in other areas too, you know, whether it's like, holding the two to four specific South Asian creators who have made it in Hollywood 
to now be the face of like every form of representation. Yes. I And I think that's just like an unfair and unrealistic amount of responsibility for a single person or a single entity. Completely agree. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was this idea of support or lack of support within our brown community and this concept of like gatekeeping, which is basically people wanting to limit information, intentionally wanting to limit information that could be beneficial. I had a DM from someone the other day saying like, um, you know, I've been wanting to start a podcast for some time. Would you be open to jumping on a call? I'd love to ask you some questions. And I responded and I said, yeah, of course, let's do it. Uh, I'd love to help whatever. Right. And I remember she responded and said, oh, my gosh, like, thank you so much. That's so nice to hear because so many people are so gatekeepy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And around that same time, I saw Deepika Mathiala, the founder of Live Tinted, kind of share something similar about how when she started her journey, she experienced a lot of just like lack of support specifically within our brown community. She experienced a lot of gatekeeping within our community. I know Lily Singh had posted something recently that, you know, got a lot of attention as far as support or lack of support specifically within the brown com brown community. And so I'm curious, like, how do you think this construct has impacted your journey as a founder within our South Asian community? Yeah, I mean, listen, gatekeeping is is something that exists everywhere. It existed in Citibank. It existed in corporate. I'm sure you experienced it at, you know, at doing what you're doing with the podcast. At the end of the day, it comes down to the individual, right? Like, I think sometimes it's like, oh, like the South Asian community is like not supporting the South Asian community. But it really comes down to the individual at the end of the day. And you don't necessarily have to have the support of the South Asian community to succeed. You can do it going externally, right? And so Thinking broadly, I think is something that's really helped me. Like I don't, I try not to associate myself with just one community or just this or just that and really put myself out there, right? To the person that I'm trying to speak with and pushing my way through. Sometimes it's like, oh, like, why won't you help me? Or asking more direct questions or when is a good time for you to, to meet with me? If it's not this week, how about next week? Like having that persistence and having the ability to kind of not push back, but like advocate for yourself and what it is that you really want, I think is something that's important. You know, at the end of the day, if you've got willpower and you've got a vision and you have goals and you have a strategy to get there, you're going to get there, right? Obviously having support of people that have been doing this for a very long time, it'll speed it up for you. It could help you maybe make a few less mistakes, but you always have, to, for me, it's always been like, I, I have to have that within me internally and assume that I'm not going to have help all the time to do every single thing that I have to, that I'm going to have to go out there and make it happen. And so mindset to me is something that's super important and, and just believing that you'll get it done no matter what. So that, you know, that has always helped me, but it is a struggle. And I think it, it's not just a struggle in this industry or with this community. It's a much broader problem that we have that, you know, we have to, we have to try to overcome individually. Ooh, yeah. I love that mindset determination. Like, Training your mindset is such a is such a superpower, like training your mindset to one, not take things personally. And then two, believe that you're going to keep going, like no matter the circumstances, whether people support you, don't support you, they have your back, they don't have your back. You know, there's a certain sense of willpower that you as the individual have to have in order to be successful. Exactly. And I, and I have to be honest, like I 
as much as I've ex- as I've experienced gatekeeping, I would say I have not more so than I have. I, I think that there has been since the very beginning, and maybe it's because we were one of the first to do what we're doing, but we had a tremendous amount of support, especially within the community, with influencers, with mentors, like people were very open to helping us. So I don't, I don't necessarily say that I can say the same things. Are there people that may have not helped possibly? But again, like you said, it's about not taking things personally. People are living very busy lives. People are juggling full-time jobs, running businesses, having families. Like sometimes it's just like they don't physically have the time to give and it's not something that's personal. Yeah. 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 Totally. So I also wanted to talk about mentorship because, you know, many founders talk about the importance of mentorship. So for you, how do you think about defining a mentor and who are some of the mentors that have guided you in your journey? Yeah. So um, like I mentioned earlier, we, you know, fortunately I had a tremendous amount of support, especially when we first started. Two of the people that right away come to mind are Payal Kadakia from ClassPass and Anjala Acharya. These are two people who, from the very beginning, have understood the story, have been, you know, they've been advocates for the brand, they've been supporters of the brand, and they have, they are mentors to me. I mean, just recently I, I met with Angela and she is just, you know what it is? They give you a fresh perspective, right, on, on the things that you're doing every single day. And sometimes you need, you need that outside lens to kind of hone you back in and make you understand, like, you're in this little bubble, but like there's a big world out there that like you need to think about, right? It's not just X that's like on your mind at this very moment. And I think for, you know, especially with Bile and Anjula, they have that very broad vision. And so I think I'm just drawn to that type of personality because they are very similar in the way that they think. And so I, I do think that having a mentor is something that's very valuable. I do get often I get asked, how do you find a mentor? Like, how do you, what, what do I do? Like, where do I go? It's outreach. It's, it's a lot of outreach. It's a lot of networking, which, um, you know, unfortunately for me early on when I had my, my job and I was raising a family, it wasn't as easy for me to put myself out there and attend all these events and, and put myself out there and network. And so again, I feel like that kind of pushed my journey a little bit, quote unquote, behind right? Where now I'm able to do those things. And I'm, and I'm putting myself out there and I'm at these different events and meeting people um, because that's how you end up making the connections that you need to make and talking and having these conversations. So my advice would be is to put yourself out there, not be afraid to send those cold DMs, those cold emails, follow up the way that you would with any, anything else that you're going after and pursuing, because um, it is, it is something that is important. Yeah, I I really loved what you said about the cold emails and the cold DMs, because at the end of the day, you just need a few yeses. So if you send 30 cold emails and you get responses from one or two, those one or two responses could still be the difference between a life changing conversation or not. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I think that's such such great advice to keep in mind. And then I guess like last few questions, you know. Are there any parting words that you would have for other aspiring entrepreneurs or founders who are trying to make their vision come to life? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is South Asians are definitely having their moment. And I think we're all seeing it in different ways now, whether it's in entertainment, whether it's in fashion and media. And as that's happening, there's going to be more and more opportunity for us to do different and cool and creative things. And that's probably your call to go and pursue those different passions that you have. What I will say is what one of my mentors told me very early on is while you're doing that, 
make sure you're doing something that is truly unique, right? Like finding that white space, people often say, like finding the things that are not being done that don't exist today, because that's what we really need, right? Our community is so close knit. It's not as big as we think. There's ways for us to do similar things, but have our own unique spin on it. And I think what happens sometimes is you'll look at someone who's successful and say, this person did X, let me just use that blueprint and go do the same thing. There's just no need for it, right? We need to think about ways that we can fill the spaces that don't exist today. Um, Whether again, that's any industry, media, podcasts, fashion, entertainment. So I would always say, um, think boldly, think about the things that make you different and try to fill the space up with something that's missing today. Beautiful. Um, And then I guess last question, I'm trying to ask this of all of my guests is what is something that is bringing you a lot of joy in your life recently? Oh my God. I mean, (laughs) literally the easiest answer ever, my kids. I mean, my kids are... They're my anchor. They're what keep, they just keep me whole when I'm coming back from like, when I'm coming back from a bad day, they're the ones that bring me back to my purpose every single day. When I come home, the smiles, the hugs, I mean, that is, there is no other definition of joy that I can think of that brings me that, that much, that level of joy. So it's definitely my children. And how old are they? So I have a nine-year-old boy, Arian, and my daughter is five years old. She is super sassy. She's got a crazy wild personality, <laughs> which is just so fun to watch. But I'm sure yeah. I'll, in a few years, I don't know if I'll be saying the same thing. But right <laughs> yeah, I see them on your page and they are so cute. And then actually one more question, because I love learning about how people met their spouses. How did you meet your husband? Yeah, so I um, I met my husband actually through mutual friends many, many years ago. And we were acquaintances on Facebook, like mutual friends through Facebook and kind of I would say that was really the stem of our relationship, like sending each other messages through there. It's kind of like a modern day dating app, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a combination of Facebook and mutual friends. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much, Mega. I really love chatting with you today. It was such a delight to have you on and hear your story and your perspectives on so many different things. Tell people where they can find you. Yeah, so we are on Instagram and we are also on TikTok. We're we're finding our way through TikTok. I know it's like it's not a very it's like this very Gen Z thing. I'm trying to figure it out, but it's at Holy Chic by Mega H O L I, and our website is holychicbymega.com. Awesome! All of that will be linked in the show notes. Thank you so much, Mega. So much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also connect with us on Instagram at thebrongirl underscore podcast and all other social media platforms listed in the show notes. Thank you again. I appreciate you being here.